Good morning and welcome to the final talk of our conference. The talk will be given by Father Phil. Father Phil is from Hull. He finished his priestly studies at Oscott. He is a priest of the Diocese of Middlesbrough and has been ordained for four years. He is currently working as Bishop Secretary and involved in youth and school work. <laughs> his talk is entitled, What the Virgin Eve Bound Through Her Disbelief, the Virgin Mary Loosened by Her Faith. Father Phil. This is what happens when you're no longer in a parish, you see. You forget how to do the simple things, like clip a microphone on. So, anyway, that's a good start, isn't it? So, we've reached the end of our conference, and it's uh, great to be giving the final talk. And uh, hopefully, just a few more minutes, and uh, we'll have the final instalment of our talks, finishing with uh, the talk on Our Lady. Uh, you'll notice that we finish our prayers each day with a hymn to Our Lady, and some of you might know that papal documents usually finish with something about Mary or perhaps a prayer for her intercession. So why is that? It's heartbreaking to realise that some people consider Our Lady to be an added extra to the Christian life, like a tick box if you're really keen. But is that fair? Is it true to think of Mary in this way? Well, according to the Catechism, what the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. That's paragraph 487. And that means, in other words, Mr. Pridmore put it much more succinctly. He said, get to know the mother, get to know the son. Simple as that. But before we start, I'd like to just cover two preliminaries, and the first is this. This is the era of sin against God the Creator. We should think about what Pope Benedict says. Recently, I came across this quote from Pope Francis when he was speaking to the Polish bishops in 2016. It was an observation by Pope Benedict, recognizing in our society a deep misunderstanding about creation and the intention of the Creator behind it. The observation seems to me a really keen one because it encompasses many of the key issues we see today. For example, even the ecology movement and the proliferation of plastic across the world. Did God create so that we could be so wasteful? Or the area of sexuality, where we're pretty much on the cusp of an anything-goes attitude. Did God create our bodies primarily as vehicles of pleasure? Or developments in technology that harness the power and possibility of creation. It seems we no longer ask whether or not we should make some of these developments, but only can we make these developments. I'd say this is the fruit of the new atheism that has been prominent in our culture for many decades through people like Richard Dawkins. It promotes science and belittles religion as though the two were in competition with each other. Once they spread the rumour that God is dead, all bets are off and anything goes. It's convenient to believe it. They're like the tenants of the vineyard planted by God in the gospel. 
They seek to kill off any competition and unwanted supervision so that they can take creation for themselves and do what they like. In this way, people are not held to account by God for their actions, and guilt is a superfluous human phenomenon. They're not bound by any sense of a given human nature, so life becomes an endless swirl of possibilities with no real direction. In other words, an era of sin against God the Creator. This attitude has been described as a practical atheism, one that doesn't need to engage with questions of truth because it's convenient to believe that the new atheism have done that for them. Instead, it's more convenient to just get on and live as you want. According to Pope Benedict, a particularly dangerous phenomenon for faith has arisen in our times. Indeed, a form of atheism exists which we define precisely as practical, in which the truths of faith or religious rights are not denied, but are merely deemed irrelevant to daily life, detached from life, pointless. So it is that people often believe in God in a superficial manner and live as though God did not exist. Hence the need for a catechesis, an explanation of the faith that can speak to the beauty and meaning of creation, where it is not just the backdrop for Christ's major role, but understood as part of the production. That's preliminary one. The second preliminary is to mention the church fathers. You'll notice our titles this week and some of the prominent quotations used as come from them. The Church Fathers refers to the group of theologians who came after the Apostles, which includes people like St. Augustine, St. Athanasius and St. Irenaeus, who were usually bishops. It indicates a time period of certainly 500 years after Christ and perhaps beyond there to the end of the first millennium. During this period, the books of the Bible were settled the great creeds that we say at Mass and in the Rosary were formulated, and many of the foundational teachings of our faith. So this was an important time in the life of the Church, and these are significant figures. They represent for us the living tradition of the Church and help us to understand how the faith has been passed down to us in its totality. St. Irenaeus, for example, was born around the year 160, And he describes how he listened at the feet of an old bishop named St. Polycarp, who had been a disciple of the Apostle St. John. Irenaeus was keen to show the continuity in the church. They represent our concern that we receive the faith of the Apostles, teach it, and hand it on. Indeed, their importance is not only in their proximity in time to Christ and the Apostles, but also in their approach to theology. They were greatly concerned for orthodoxy, that is, teaching the truth that has been revealed to us by Jesus Christ. Some of them paid for their orthodoxy quite personally. Athanasius, I think, for example, was deposed five times from his, from his diocese. In addition, we could say their writings also have a cosmic scope, which means they were conscious of trying to see God's plan in its entirety, and consequently how the different truths of our faith all fit together to express God's logic, as Father Stephen called it. So I hope you will recognise it in our approach this week. We've tried to offer you a vision of our Catholic faith which explains creation and the universe as modern science has come to understand it and is totally faithful to the living tradition we have received. 
This enables us to speak to this era of sin against God the Creator. So we began this week with Father Matthew's reasons for believing in God. Not as reasons for believing in aliens, but God as immaterial, intelligent, and eternal. He posed a wonderful challenge for us when looking at the universe. Can we recognize the beauty God has created as his? And it's similar to a quote by Augustine. He said, question the beauty of the earth. Question the beauty of the sea. Question the beauty of the air distending and diffusing itself. Question the beauty of the sky. Question all these realities. All respond, see, we are beautiful. Their beauty is a profession, like a confession. These beauties are subject to change. Who made them, if not the beautiful one, who is not subject to change? Father Stingley, I mean, sorry, Father Stephen Dingley. gave us an exposition of the uniqueness of human beings created body and soul. This great plan of God working throughout the universe leads to the development of material life on this planet. One creature seems to go beyond to its physical expectations and is infused with a spiritual soul. God allows free will to enter. And Father Kevin describes something we experienced out in the world and if we're honest, within our very selves as well, And he gave a great quotation from the Catechism. It's 387, if you want to go back and look it up. It goes like this. Only the light of divine revelation clarifies the reality of sin, and particularly of the sin committed at mankind's origins. Without the knowledge revelation gives of God, we cannot recognize sin clearly and attempted to explain it as merely a developmental flaw psychological weakness, a mistake, or the necessary consequence of an inadequate social structure. Only in the knowledge of God's plan for man can we grasp that sin is an abuse of the freedom that God gives to created persons so that they are capable of loving him and loving one another. Notice in this era of sin against God the creator, sin only makes sense if we acknowledge the plan we find in his creation. Yesterday, Father Luis told us the purpose and end of all creation is Jesus Christ. He is the environment for our souls. He's the saviour who brings fulfilment and the redeemer who heals our brokenness. Creation was made for Christ. And Father David described beautifully those requests in the gospel like desires of the human heart. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Lord, give us that bread always. If we wish to nourish our souls in Jesus, our spiritual environment, we will find him in the assembly, the kahal that he has established, called the church. So what about Mary? Where does she fit into this? A naysayer is correct that Catholics have too much focus on Mary. Let's go to that pivotal moment of the Annunciation to gather with others to see what we can understand. In fact, the life of Mary beautifully magnifies God and enlightens our belief in Jesus. I just want to draw out three simple points from this moment of the Annunciation when Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. He describes how Mary will bear in her womb the Son of the Most High, 
and she must name him Jesus. Mary asked how it can happen since she is a virgin, and Gabriel assures her that it is through the Holy Spirit. And Mary responds, Here I am, the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. We've described a great plan that is centered upon God becoming a human being. Scientific laws guide matter through its various stages of development and encourage the creation of planets and the evolution of life. Essentially, scientific processes which are pretty standard until we get to the infusion of a spiritual soul in man to know and love God. This whole process is anticipating the appearance of Mary and this moment when she is invited to become the mother of God. For this reason, she's not incidental to God's plan, but chosen before the ages. Now, at one time in the church, there grew up a dispute about Mary's role. We know her as the mother of God, and it was a title in popular use from very early on in the church. We know this from an ancient prayer used by Christians called in its Latin title, Subtuum Presidium. Interestingly, there's a manuscript from 3rd century Egypt in the John Rylands Museum in Manchester containing this prayer. It's probable it was already in use before that time, so perhaps it emerged as early as the 2nd century. The prayer runs as follows. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but keep us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. The fathers of the church would all have been very familiar with it. It's a great sign of the devotion the early church had for Our Lady. The third century was full of persecution, so the idea that the early Christians would look to Mary for protection and comfort is striking. Yet suddenly in the fifth century, an infamous bishop decided it was no longer proper to use the title Mother of God, because he thought, how could God have a mother? Having a mother would seem to imply he had a beginning, but God is eternal and without a beginning. To explain his theory, he insisted Mary bore in her womb a special man who was later joined to the second person of the Trinity. For him, Jesus was God and man, but in fact he was two people, a divine one and a human one. So he outlawed in his area the title Mother of God and instead preferred Mother of Christ, Christ being the human person in this equation. In this understanding, the incarnation never really took place. Jesus wasn't God made man, the word made flesh, but just a special man adopted by God or close to God. We would no longer be able to say God died for us. We would no longer be able to call Jesus Emmanuel, God is with us. God would not have taken on our physical world to communicate to us in a way we could understand. This was so serious, the church had to call a council to clear up the mess. So in 431 at Ephesus, Mary was declared truly mother of God, meaning the second person of the Trinity was truly conceived in her womb and took on a human nature. Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, true God and true man. This is a great illustration of that quotation at the beginning from the Catechism. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. 
In a sense, we could say Mary safeguards the truth about Jesus and consequently the truth about the whole of creation. Our human nature is made for God and fulfilled in the incarnation. God has truly become one of us to fulfill our human nature. He does this through the womb of Mary. So she is destined always to be mother of God, not just mother of Christ. A second insight follows this one. At the Annunciation, Gabriel addresses Mary in a manner we translate, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace, we say in that prayer. The special Greek word is, I think I've got it right, kekaritomene. And for those who are interested in grammar, it takes the Greek word for grace, which is charis, and turns it into a perfect passive participle which basically means a significant moment in the past done to someone which still has an effect up to the present. So, to apply this word to Mary. Mary was graced significantly in the past, and this gracing is still effective up to the present. This is an allusion to Mary's preparation for being the mother of God. In 1854, Mary was declared to be the Immaculate Conception, It's a truth wonderfully celebrated in Lourdes, if any of you have had the opportunity to visit there on pilgrimage. This dogma of the church states that Mary was preserved from the stain of original sin from the moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege from God. If, as Father Kevin explained, the state of original sin, not the gosh, that's new meaning, but the other one, uh, is passed on by human generation... How could the second person of the Trinity at the moment of his conception receive a human nature at odds with God? In other words, Mary had to be preserved from the state of original sin for Jesus to become man. She is full of grace. But more than this, according to Father Edward Holloway, who is the founder of the faith movement, Mary's vocation is defined and decreed before the world was before sin was, before Satan was. She has it by right of her awful vocation that she is necessarily preserved for God at the summit of the working of evolution to be the crown of nature in bringing into creation the king whose head crowns heaven and earth. If she's to bring into the world the king of creation, Edward Holloway has given an image of her being the crown that rests upon his head. It's a beautiful image of Mary destined for Jesus. So our final insight at the moment of the Annunciation comes from the title of this talk, which is, What the Virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, the Virgin Mary loosened through her faith. St. Paul, in his writings, is keen to contrast Adam and Christ. Adam's decision led to condemnation for all. Christ's decision has opened the possibility of salvation to all. Adam sinned by a tree. Christ was victorious through the tree of the cross. Hence, Jesus is called the new Adam. And you might remember Father David speaking about patterns. This is another pattern. In a similar manner, Mary is contrasted with Eve. Eve chose to eat the fruit at the proposition of the fallen angel. Mary chose to do God's will at the proposition of the archangel. 
Through Eve, death entered the world. Through Mary, the one who calls himself life. So St. Irenaeus, and even St. Justin to some extent a few decades before him, so barely a hundred years after Christ, saw a salvific significance to Mary's yes to God, such that she plays a seminal role in salvation. She is the new Eve to Christ's new Adam. It's as though she provides a harmony or an accompaniment to Christ's solo, his hymn of salvation. And so if you ever heard of devotion to Mary, untire of knots, this is where it comes from, from uh, St. Irenaeus's quotation. And I often think that's a wonderful devotion. I don't know if you find this, but in families, um, there's, there's often, and you come across this as a priest, particularly when you're doing funerals, it seems, um, there's all sorts of disputes among families, that there's old uh, wounds that have not yet healed. And so you get disputes when you're trying to organise a funeral for someone. I think this is a wonderful devotion for families. Our Lady on Tire of Knots, perhaps helping us to undo the things that we find it too difficult to do ourselves. So creation looks forward to the emergence of the spiritual creature that is man. In all creation, it is the human soul that gives the power of free will and the possibility of choosing the life of love. We can't pass by this wonderful image of the Annunciation without recognizing God's radical respect for his creatures. Mary is given the choice to participate in God's plan to bring about the incarnation. She's not incidental to salvation, but integral to God's vision for the cosmos. He chooses her for this, and she responds in obedience. We might ask at this moment, if God has a plan for the universe and a plan for Mary, does he have a plan for me too? Mary was given a part to play, a particular grace to aid her, and the choice to complete it. Are we given a part, or a grace, or a choice? Absolutely. Pope Benedict at his inauguration put it like this, we are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. You are part of God's great plan, and without you, it would be lacking. In other words, God has a vocation for you, a part to play. To discover it, we need the help of his grace and it takes humility to acknowledge our need. So go to Mass, go to confession, make time for prayer. We cannot discover the beauty of creation and of our life without grace. Put yourselves in situations to receive grace and avoid occasions that tear us away. And I just want to say something about choice. Because we exist in a culture which is heavily based upon choice. People define themselves by their choices. To choose is to bring about your self-realization, we could say. I am a person if I do what I want. When we say we live in a liberal society, this is an aspect of what is meant. So any external influence upon our choosing is to be distrusted. Hence authority and consequently religion is highly suspect because it's an outside influence on our choice. The problem here is, is that if everyone does what they want, 
we end up in a really selfish world and perhaps this is part of the individualism that we see around us. A misuse of our free will, or in other words, an era of sin against God the Creator who has given us a spiritual soul. Yet our free will is a good thing, so choosing is good if it's used to choose the right thing, to make the best decision. At the end of this conference, I would like to commend to you Mary as a model and intercessor for our choices. When you go back to the world, you will be surrounded by endless possibilities on your phones, with your friends, at parties, in society. Try to be conscious that you are called by God to be holy. That means making decisions for him that lead us closer to him. It means making God part of our life. In fact, making him the most important part of our life. So if we're called to center our lives upon Christ, then we have a clear and sure path through Mary. Her very being points towards her son and she chooses to join him in his work of salvation. Our decisions have a salvific value too. That means that they contribute to our salvation. If we choose not necessarily what is easiest, but like Mary inspired by his grace, what is best. Her choice took her to the foot of the cross, admittedly, and involved great suffering. But this is unavoidable in a broken world. Indeed, it also took her to the resurrection and Pentecost. She wants us to follow her son closely so that we too can see his salvation and the power of his resurrection. We have at our disposal the gift of the rosary, a simple prayer which reflects on the life of Christ. It causes us to center our life upon Christ. We can pray that for the grace to choose what is best. In the scriptures, Mary is called full of grace and blessed among women. We can use these inspired titles also because we are called to a filial devotion. As if he needed to, Jesus makes her importance explicit at the foot of the cross when he invited St. John to welcome her into his own home as his mother. May each of us hear in our hearts those precious words of Jesus. Behold your mother.